My name is Brian Hayes. I'm the program chair for the Chicago chapter of Cornet Global. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to our first luncheon event of uh, 2008. Before I introduce today's speaker and program, just a couple of quick reminders to, again, mark your calendars for Thursday, February 14th. You might want to mark it as Valentine's Day. I can't take responsibility for anything there, but we also have a luncheon. Uh, beyond green, government leaders contemplate the next step. We'll get a view from the public sector on the issue of sustainability. should be interesting. And I also would remind you to fill out the forms at your table, the evaluation form. Uh, we really do appreciate when you take the time to do that and give us the feedback on the programs that you've seen. It helps us uh, certainly put the programs together that, that you want to see. Today's program is, we're calling it our fourth annual economic forecast. We're not sure if it's four or five, but uh, we're delighted to uh, sponsor this event once again. When we gathered this time a year ago, the, uh, the outlook economically was a little sunnier, I think, than what we're, we've certainly been hearing in the press for the last 60 days or so, or six months perhaps. Um, but at this point in time, we were very fortunate to have our speaker today, who I think will give us some perspective, and he has promised me there's some good news in there somewhere, or at least, at least it's not all bad. Uh, making his third appearance with us uh, is Bill Strauss. Bill is a senior economist and economic advisor in the Economic Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. He's been with the Federal Reserve since 1982. Uh, his chief responsibilities include analyzing the current performance of both the Midwest economy and the manufacturing sector for use in monetary policy. He also produces the monthly Chicago Fed Midwest Manufacturing Index and organizes the bank's annual Economic Outlook Symposium and the annual Auto Outlook Symposium. He currently teaches at the University of Chicago, as well as the DePaul University Kelstad School. Uh, he's a frequent contributor to various business media and is a past president of the Chicago Association of Business Economists and currently serves as a board member for the National Association for Business Economics and as a member of the Advisory Council for the University of Illinois at Chicago's Center for Economic uh, education. Uh, uh, Bill earned his uh, BA in economics and geography from the State University of New York at Buffalo and has an MA in economics from Northwestern University. I did take the liberty of taking his summary slide from last year's presentation and just to help his bona fides here, he pointed out that uh, he saw unemployment edging higher, which it certainly has been doing. And uh, that the housing market is expected to remain soft over the coming year remains the biggest risk on the horizon. I think you certainly got that right. So uh, it's in writing. A lot of economists won't do that. So we're delighted to have Bill Strauss. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Brian. I also want to squash the rumor that there was a chance I wasn't going to speak this year because of the writer's strike. Um, I actually had to go and work out my own speech this year and couldn't, you know, I couldn't have any of those writers uh, help me along. So uh, hopefully I'll be as relatively accurate as I, I was over the past year. There is, still, there is good news. Um, I think uh, uh, the fact is that the economy is expected to continue to expand in 2008. Uh, hopefully, you know, I think the, uh, we're going to avoid the R word, the recession word, uh, for this year. Um, but let's kind of take a look at, uh, at, at how the economy has been performing. When we look at our best measurement of real economic activity in the United States, uh, that's the value of, of – uh, and the growth rate of real GDP. So this is the value of all final goods and services produced, and it's been growing actually pretty well uh, through the third quarter. We'll get our first look at the fourth quarter at the very end of this month, um, but I'll talk about that in just a second. That being said, um, and, and by the way, I do have handouts of these slides uh, up at the front table, but I don't think I have enough for the entire crowd. I was told uh, about 120, and I think uh, we did quite well on the attendance. So perhaps at the end of the afterwards, if you'd like a copy, they're sitting up right by the uh, uh, by the projector. Um, so uh, you can, if you see the last couple of quarters up there, the growth rate has actually been spectacular, near four percent and above, or near six percent in the in the third quarter. So, or sorry, near five percent in the third quarter. So these are phenomenal growth rates, especially when we view trend growth for the U.S. economy as between two and a half and two and three quarter percent. 
That being said, a bit of this is an anomaly, um, and uh, the strength that, is, that contributed to that is not expected to continue uh, going forward. In fact, the consensus outlook for the, fir- for the fourth quarter is a number close to 1%. So how do I view 2008 in this context? Well, I see the relatively sluggish performance for the U.S. economy uh, continuing uh, through most of this year. But in particular, it's going to be soft in the, for the first half of the year. And then by the second half, we'll be returning up to growth that is much closer to trend growth for the U.S. economy. This two and a half uh, to two and three quarter, maybe three percent growth uh, for the U.S. economy. In large part, uh, that's because of the outlook for uh, the housing sector. As I mentioned uh, last year, housing uh, is, was a concern, and it certainly materialized to be just that. When we look around the economy, uh, it's not too long before we find out what the weakest sector for last year was, and that was the housing industry. Uh, we see declines of, uh, of, of, of significant double-digit for the housing sector. And more importantly, we found out some information as we came into the second half of the year that was a little bit startling. And this kind of, I mentioned as a a key risk of of the outlook was that housing turned out to be actually worse uh, than we were predicting. I actually thought housing might actually be bottoming in, in 2007. And going into 2007, for at least the first half, I felt pretty good about that. Uh, Because when you look at the pattern there, you could see that the declines were still pretty significant, but through the first quarter, second quarter, uh, those declines were getting less and less, so that the drag from the housing sector was easing. It was uh, not offsetting the growth of the economy very much. But then, in the third quarter, we took another step down. We took another leg down on this, and, and that was a little bit of the concern about whether housing is going to be falling much more significantly into the future. Well, let me give you, and again, I'm going to violate one of the standard rules about economic forecasting, which is if you're going to to give a forecast, you give a number or you give a date, but never both. Um, So my outlook for the housing sector is that um, it's going to bottom this year probably, and, uh, you know, this is my best guess at it, it's probably going to happen by mid-year. That's a little bit more optimistic than... um, uh, than many other forecasters who see the housing sector being soft through the end of the year. In fact, that's the outlook from a consensus group of 33 economists who made a forecast, which is at the very end of the, uh, that handout that is being distributed. Um, they see it uh, bottoming in the, by the third quarter, fourth quarter of the year. I think it will happen a bit sooner, but I'm going to talk more about housing towards the very end. But nonetheless, when we look at what's happened over the past year, residential investment has stripped a full percentage point off of growth for the U.S. economy. In other words, had housing not grown, but at least not declined, we would be looking at a growth rate for the real economy of not close to 3% over the past year, but closer to 4%. So very substantial. So the ex-housing, the non-housing part of the U.S. economy, actually had been performing fairly well. So let's, take, let's go into some of the risks, though, that, that still remain out there. Well, what had been looking pretty good for most of 2007 took a turn for the worse as we came to the end, and that is inflation. Uh, inflation really picked up as we came to the end of the year. But in large part, many of you are certainly aware that that's due to what's happened on on oil prices. And oil prices skyrocketed as we came to the end, where in, in, in November it was close to $95 per barrel. It backed off a bit in December, but still remaining over $90 per barrel. And certainly we get a lot of press attention to this sector because of, you know, we're inundated with prices probably on the way over here. You probably took a look at what gasoline prices are. You, you're hit with that almost on a daily, well, not almost, but you're hit on, on a daily basis uh, more than any other price probably of any other product out there in the marketplace. So we tend to overly emphasize this. Plus, when I teach my classes at the universities, uh, this is a classic chart that I put up there. Because if you ever have a speaker come and talk to you from British Petroleum or any of the other energy-producing companies, um, what they're going to do is they'll show this chart and then talk about uh, the outlook. Well, this is, uh, you know, a classic example of what Benjamin Disraeli 
mentioned uh, in a very famous uh, quip about uh, how to lie, that there are three types of lies that exist out there. Uh, Benjamin Disraeli, the British Prime Minister from the 1800s, said that there is the, you have the lie, you have the damn lie, and then you have statistics. Um, <laughs> So what is, what is a lie about this chart? Well, it's kind of showing the fact that, you know, energy prices have, you know, are significantly higher than we've ever seen them. Uh, by the way, the people, if you ever listen to people talk about farm prices or ag- commodity prices in the ag industry or gold prices, it's the same deal. They focus on this and they talk about it in nominal terms. They don't understand and make the adjustment that, you know, a dollar today is not worth a dollar back in 1980. You could see back in 1980, the previous peak, uh, it was about $40 per barrel. It's more than twice that today. Isn't that amazing? Well, if we adjust for inflation, what we would find out is that those prices are, in fact, higher in 1980 than even the $95 that we had in November. Um, and, in fact... I would even suggest that perhaps we ought, to be, we ought to be thinking about this period here during the 80s and 90s as being the anomaly. That, in fact, we had extremely low energy prices during this period. And certainly relative to the 1980 price, today's prices, there's been a zero rate of inflation from that peak price of 1980. So, you know, when you, when you think about it from that standpoint, it puts things into a very, very different context. And, in fact, because of energy prices were so relatively undervalued from a historical standpoint, this is the reason why we created products like the SUV during the 1990s, which never would have come into existence had energy prices not fallen to the extent that it had over this period. In fact, when energy prices pushed gasoline prices in 2004 over $2 per gallon, you saw that the demand for these these ultra-large vehicles began to wane and has really caused a lot of disruptions for uh, several of the producers out there who had a market niche producing these these larger vehicles. So um, that puts so the point of this is uh, you know does higher energy prices put the economy at risk for recession? And I think the answer is no. You know, we don't like paying these higher prices, but I don't think they're at levels, certainly at the levels we're at at this point, that put the economy at a risk of, of a recession. Why is that? Number one, it's not all oil prices. Another piece of energy story is the fact that, you know, we consume a lot of natural gas. Your your monthly gas bills here in the Midwest is how we heat our homes. Um, Those prices are basically unchanged from where we were a year ago. And, in fact, they're down substantially following the period following post-Katrina and Rita, uh, the hurricanes that decimated the Gulf states when those prices were double what they were today. So we've got 50% lower cost than we had a couple of years ago. Uh, And again, this is not escalating uh, at this point. Another reason why um, I'm not concerned about energy is that even though we are now up to energy prices that we saw back in 1980 in real terms, we don't need as much energy to drive our economy. This is a measurement of how much energy it takes to produce a dollar's worth of GDP. And as you can see, it goes back to 1950, it has been falling quite substantially over time. In fact, we need half as much energy today to produce a dollar's worth of GDP than we did back in 1950. Now, we're importing and using a heck of a lot more energy today than ever before, but we're a much larger economy, right? We just passed 300 million uh, people uh, in, in the economy. Um, you know, so we, 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 as a larger economy is expanding, we use more. But in terms of how much energy we need to produce a dollar's worth of GDP, because of the fact that service economy continues to dominate the growth of the U.S. economy, services require less energy than, for example, manufacturing. And by the way, manufacturing is at an all-time high. Uh, manufacturing sector is doing very well, thank you very much. Um, but it just is not requiring uh, as many people to do it as, as it has in the past. And that's one of the benefits of productivity and one of the curses of productivity. Uh, but it's the reason why we have manufacturing. So let me, let me uh, give an example of, of some of the reasons why we're seeing this better performance on the energy side as a share. Well, as mentioned, uh, we, manufacturing is representing a smaller part of what the U.S. economy is all about. And that is, uh, for example, think of how long it takes one of you to earn $600. You know, think about what, an, what your average hourly salary is and then how many hours you need to work. And then think about what your energy requirements are. I mean, for, for Bill Strauss, it's, uh, you know, I have my, my, my office at the Fed, uh, so it's lighting that. 
cooling or heating it um, for that period of time, and you know, running the, the, the computers. In fact, I have three computers. Don't ask me about that right now uh, in my office. Um, and and the uh, uh, you know, so when I add up how many hours it takes and what the electric bill would be, you know, we're probably talking a couple of bucks. You know, not very much at all. Versus how much energy it takes to produce a ton of steel, which right now is priced in at about $600 a ton. Uh, a lot more energy intensity. The other thing is that we are constantly learning how to be more efficient about energy. For example, you know, for years, even in the service economy, the Fed had asked, you know, Bill, would you mind turning off your lights at the end of the day when you go home? You know, I try to be green. But sometimes I'm more concerned about, you know, do I have my keys with me and so forth? And, you know, have I locked up all my cabinets? Uh, And just kind of walk out the office. So more often than not, the lights would remain on. Well, guess what? The Fed came up with a Bill Strauss solution. Uh, They have installed this little device that sits on the wall that when I walk in the office, the lights go on. When I fall asleep at the desk, they go off. Um, It's just a great device. And so, you know, I left to come here. Fifteen minutes after I left the office, the lights have gone off. So, you know, it's things like that 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 do add up and, and contribute, certainly with all the new heating plants and cooling plants and technology. It's made us less dependent to drive our economy on energy. The other thing to think about, and the reason why I'm, again, optimistic that this high energy price is not going to translate into a, a real risk on the, on the consumer or business person, is if I ask you to think about how much money you spend on energy goods and services, so this is, you know, beyond filling up your, your vehicles, it's paying your gas bill, your electric bill, what it turns out to be is something on the amount of six cent- Right now, 6.4%. This is data through November when the oil prices were up at uh, $95 per barrel. And, you know, is it a lot higher than we had it a few years ago? Absolutely. Uh, But when you look at this share, uh, you would get the sense that that period back here, that was the outlier. That was the anomaly. In fact, when we look at this from a long-run perspective, going back to 1960, the share averaged 6.4%. So right now, all we're at is a long-run average of what we have typically spent on energy, goods, and services. Just over six cents of every dollar that we spend uh, goes towards this particular product. So do we like uh, spending this much? No. But is it an amount similar to, say, 1980? Remember, in 1980, with the same energy prices we have today, that represented about 9.5% of consumer spending. That's a very different scenario than we're at today, a full three percentage points below that. And uh, what this means and the reason why that's the case is that while energy prices in real terms have been remained unchanged, real incomes haven't. Real incomes have risen substantially over this period to make that, as a, to make that dollar spending to be a small share of total spending by the consumer. So, again, I'm, uh, I'm not all that uh, uh, pessimistic about this leading us into a, a recession. But one interesting thing that uh, we can't lose sight of is that there is a marketplace for energy. So this prompted me, after I gave my very first speech um, uh, this week, uh, to, to go back. I gave a speech Tuesday night, and I was, as I was giving a speech, I was thinking about the relationship and how the path of energy prices and oil prices uh, went this past year. And they just seemed to not make a whole lot of sense. For example, you look at the relationship between oil prices on the vertical axis there, and this is the gasoline price. Uh, It is uh, in terms of the refiner to the end user, but it does not include taxes. As you know, taxes make up a a certain portion of your your consumption, and that varies substantially location to location. So I'm ignoring that at all. So I'm just putting up here uh, the non-tax price of of, of gasoline. And as you can see, it's an absolutely beautiful fit. Uh, the correlation on that is 97.1%. So, I mean, if you want to know what's going to happen on gasoline prices, tell me what oil prices are, and I'll be able to predict that. But not so good in 2007, because, in fact, uh, when I put up there what happened in 2007, uh, this was the early months of 2007. And Back then, when energy prices were 60 to $70 per barrel, we saw gasoline prices that were north of $3 per gallon. That seemed to be a little higher than what that would have expected, and we all kind of thought that. Conversely, as we came to the end of the year, you know, well, if we were getting $3 plus per gallon when the energy prices were at $60, $70 per barrel, 
What would happen at $95 per barrel? Right? We should be having uh, gasoline prices close to $4 or higher. And in fact, the most recent values up there, uh, this only goes through October, so we don't even have the $95 price illustrated up there. But uh, you can see that uh, it was a lot higher on the oil price, but not so high on the gasoline price. So there's a little bit of some strangeness going on to these marketplaces. Um, this, was a, you know, this part here was explained by the fact that we have this reformulated gasoline and we couldn't get the supplies out, and that caused prices to move higher than otherwise would be the case. There might be something to that, given the fact that we haven't seen much uh, on these higher prices at this point affect the per pump price. But I think there's another factor playing a role, and that is that as much as we uh, like to think that uh, gasoline is an, is an inelastic good, that we, ten, we tend not to be too price sensitive to it, that's not really the case, that there is, in fact, a downward sloping demand curve to it. So that when we look at what's happened, uh, the blue line there represents the price changes for gasoline, and the red line is the amount of gasoline consumed. Uh, the, ch the growth rates on both of those. And what we find out is year to date through the first 10 months of 2007 that, in fact, there was a slightly over 5% gain in the price of gasoline and in an expanding, growing economy with more people working, more activity taking place, we actually consumed 3.5% uh, less gasoline than we did the prior year. So there is a demand reaction. And the powers that be in the oil industry recognize that, that their largest market here in the United States, there is price sensitivity to some degree. And that they, you know, the fear is that you bring that up to $4 per gallon and you're going to see an even sharper reduction. In fact, we might actually have to not subsidize, uh, uh, you know, some of our local, uh, you know, uh, mass transportation systems as much as we do. The, rider, the riderships would soar. Uh, congestion would ease up. Uh, a number of things would actually benefit from higher energy prices, but that's another story. And the other thing on inflation is the fact that, uh, you know, we're now beginning to pay the price, as we have long talked about at the Fed, about this food for fuel trade-off that we have decided to undertake. As we have moved towards this ethanol still type of production, uh, we're taking good acreage and using it for fuel purposes rather than food purposes. And that is leading to food prices really beginning to move up in a very significant way. And I think people are realizing that, you know, to take, you know, feedstock and use that for our fuel, there's a price to be paid for that in terms of other products that are not being marketed. I think the whole thing, the ethanol thing, if you planted every single acreage in, in, in feedstock and then use that for ethanol, you're talking about less than uh, a little over 10% of our entire fuel needs. It's not the salvation by any means, let alone what that would do to food prices. Um, but this is another side of the equation that's not getting as much attention, but I think it's going to. I think we're going to hear a lot more about some of this and the movement that's going to have to move very quickly to start to use waste-type products, switchgrass and so forth, rather than high-value commodities like, uh, like feed corn. So um, removing food and energy prices, which are both moving up quite substantially, uh, we can see the fact that uh, uh, the core rate of inflation, which had been hanging out around 2%, actually had been moving down through 2007, appears to have reversed itself and is beginning to rise. And for those members of the FOMC, the Federal Market Committee, who are more hawkish, they're seeing this as not a very good trend. You know, you could easily figure that, you know, we're on the cusp of seeing some of these uh, inflation rates move higher and higher. And more times than not, it's been inflation getting out of hand that has undone an economic expansion because uh, it has its own self-perpetuating mechanism, and we really, from the Fed standpoint, that's our number one objective, is to keep inflation under control. So it's going to be a very interesting set of meetings in the early part of this year, because as many of you are aware, the Fed has been cutting interest rates. We reduced interest rates by 100 basis points beginning in September on concerns of the financial liquidity issues, and I'll talk more about that at the very end. But that has led to this conundrum that we're now facing, that in the face of a rising rate of inflation um, and the fact that the economy is still kind of holding in there, you know, what is the proper path for policy? Um, and I think it's going to be some, like I said, some very, very interesting discussions. Some other good news. Um, 
we continue to add jobs. Uh, now, the growth rate has definitely slowed. We think of trend growth for the U.S. economy as around 90 to 100,000 jobs a month. During 2007, we did a lot better than that. We added about 111,000 jobs per month. Um, 1.3 million new workers uh, are participating at the end of the year than was the case the year earlier. Um, and in fact, uh, one thing you can note, though, is that the growth rate in the last two quarters, so the second half of the year, was below 1%. That is somewhat below what the uh, job growth for new entrants coming in needs to be. So consequently, we begin to see the unemployment rate tick up a bit more. Uh, now, it still remains quite low, 4.8% in the fourth quarter, although December was a bit uh, disappointing number. Fourth, uh, the December number was 5%, jumped up quite sharply from 4.7%. Just wait for the revision is all I can say. These numbers can be revised very substantially. That being said, even with the disappointing 18,000 jobs added in December, we now have a record expansion for uh, job growth. Uh, we have over four years of consecutive monthly job increases on a month-to-month -month basis. We've never had that in our economy before. So uh, this market continues to, to develop and to do relatively well and has been very supportive for, for the economy. Uh, the initial claims for unemployment insurance have moved a bit higher as we close the year, suggesting a little softening on the market. Well, this morning's number came in. Now, this is a weekly number, granted, but it's back down to 322000 So it has moved uh, back down, and we'll have to see how that averages out for the rest of the month. The point is, I wouldn't necessarily say that the labor market is deteriorating rapidly. It's definitely softening. I think we're more likely to see performance of, of the second half of the year continue into 2008, which means that I think for the year as a whole this year, we'll be looking at job growth that's going to be closer to 1.1 to 1.2 million jobs being added rather than the excess of 1.3 million that we saw over the past year. Now, what about the Midwest? Well, if some of this doesn't ring quite true, there's good reason for that. This is one of my modern art slides. Um, it's an awful slide. I, I apologize for presenting it. Uh, who could make out what's going on there? Uh, but I want, you, I want you to focus on the end point here. This, thick, this black line heading down here, that's the growth rate of U.S. employment. Um, and as you can see, the five states that make up the Seventh Federal Reserve District, uh, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan, uh, are basically, well, Iowa's a bit above, but the other three states, Wisconsin, Indiana, and, and Illinois, are a bit below. And that's actually been the case for, for about 10 years. So our economy, in terms of employment growth, has been lagging some of the faster-growing parts of, of the economy in the United States. That's not a new story. You know, we compete against the weather of the southeast and the southwest. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it, we're, it's expected that we're not going to do all that great uh, in terms of, of job growth. All right. That being said, though, the one state, though, that does stand out in a more significant difference from the national trend, as you can see up there, is the green line, the state of Michigan. The state of Michigan is a disaster. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the proximity to the state of Michigan geographically is affecting many of the, of the states that are near her, including Illinois. Um, we do have a lot of business with the state of, of Michigan. So if you look at that state, though, I mean, it's, it's, it's a disaster. Um, they have uh, uh, peak employment in the state of Michigan was June of 2000. They have over seven years of job losses. Okay? They have lost over 450,000 jobs. That's about 10% of their employment pool. So imagine what that does to a state economy, tax revenue. Think about what it does to the housing sector, right? Uh, people who are retiring who want to get out of Michigan to retire to sunny Florida or Arizona, whatever, uh, they're stuck there. Because you don't have new jobs being created. You don't have new people coming in to buy uh, all that existing housing stock. So they have one of the worst housing markets in the country. Their unemployment rate is well above that of any other state uh, by leaps and bounds. If the United States looked like Michigan right now, we would be in a very severe recession, worse than 1980. Um, and, and, and this is something that has little to do with economics and a lot to do with the old adage of lack of diversification. 
right? Uh, basically, Michigan has a very heavy concentration in durable manufacturing, not just manufacturing. In fact, they're, they're underrepresented in non-durable manufacturing. They put all of their baskets in durable manufacturing and, in particular, vehicle manufacturing. Forty percent of their manufacturing jobs are in vehicle manufacturing, so they have consolidated that, and that was their one-trick pony, and that pony has its leg broken, and it needs to be shot, and that's what they're doing. Um, the transition that's going on right now in Michigan is, is what's happening, um, and we'll, I'll talk more about that in, in when we get into the piece on, on the auto industry, but it's, it's going to basically continue to be a terrible economy for the next couple of years. There's no turnaround in vision. And if going back here, you can see that the declines on employment growth are getting worse, not better. So, but let's go back to the United States. With job growth continuing, we've had, like I said, over four years of job growth, that's been very supportive for income. So those people who are out there talking about, oh, well, we're in a recession now, the data doesn't support it. You know, I don't, I don't know what they're looking at, um, but when I think about recession, um, you know, you're looking, you have to look at the broad picture of what's happening in the economy. Jobs continue to be created. Uh, incomes are rising at substantial rates, 4% after taxes, after inflation gains. Um, the stock market continues to do quite well. Uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, again, it's been a tough month of January so far, but it's only, what, 10 days or so? Just wait for the second two-thirds of the month uh, to occur. And uh, uh, we'll, but anyway, that's been supportive. So when we look at consumer spending, you know, it's been doing okay, all in all. Uh, concern about the holiday period, how much people spent or not, you know, but nonetheless, uh, nothing's really falling off the map too badly. One other positive thing has been the fact that uh, productivity growth came back very nicely in the third quarter. Uh, did also well in the second quarter, but there was concern, I think I expressed this last year, that the slowdown in productivity growth, uh, you know, if that continued for any length of time, we would have to reevaluate what we think of as the speed limit of growth for the U.S. economy. And if, if, if productivity growth, rather than growing at one and a half to one and three quarter percent, which is what we think about it right now, might, might have been growing at, say, one percent or lower, that means that we're going to have to really think about a whole different path for the future of the United States. You run policy at both fiscal and monetary in a very different framework, and expectations of standards of living for consumers have to be readjusted in a very significant way. So right now, I'm still sticking with my expectation of this one and a half to one and three quarter productivity growth. And again, I'm supported uh, with the fact that the second and third quarter came in at a pretty nice uh, rate. That being said, businesses are finding it a bit more challenging to turn a profit. Their costs have increased. We've seen what's happened on, on, on the inflation rates. So certainly input costs between labor costs, raw material costs have risen quite substantially to businesses. And it turned, and they're having a little bit more difficulty passing that on to consumers. That being said, the profit share of the U.S. economy had reached very high levels. So there is enough profit out there to start passing this back. And, in fact, we saw a similar pattern occur during the late 90s um, where that profit share uh, was causing profits to actually trail lower. So I think that the offset of that is that the incomes, as you have seen, on, on, are rising with the tight labor market. So it's a, it's a transference from one sector to the other in the economy. Another bright spot and I believe I mentioned this last year, um, was going to be one of the supportive aspects was going to be the international front. Um, and that certainly bore out the case. It doesn't look all that great uh, in terms of the improvement, but this improvement here on our trade deficit is enormous. Um, over the past year, we went from having 6% of our economy represented by that trade deficit. It is now, in one year's time, down to 5% a full 1% improvement in, in a one-year period. That's, that's impressive. What contributed to that? Well, the weakening dollar has certainly made domestically made goods relatively more attractive to foreign consumers, and that has supported export demand, which remained very strong, growing by over 5% throughout most of the year, and in fact accelerated to the end, to the third quarter, growing up by 10%. I expect these kind of patterns to continue into 2008. In fact, to give you one example, um, the steel industry, doing great. Domestic demand is, eh, 
you know, the auto industry is pulling back somewhat. The white goods industry, you know, the, the appliances are, are pulling back somewhat. Um, but nonetheless, our steel producers are ramping up production. Why? For the very first time ever, they are actually exporting steel. The U.S. had always been kind of a net importer. We very rarely send steel outside the U.S. But because prices are much better for steel outside of the U.S., our domestic producers of steel are exporting for the very first time. It also, because of those higher prices outside the U.S., previous importers are saying, why send it to the United States? We can get better prices in Europe and Asia and so forth. So imports are falling off. So while the domestic demand is not doing as great for our producers, their market share is increasing substantially because of that loss of import share coming in. So, uh, and when we look at the imports coming into the United States, because a weakening dollar makes imports relatively more expensive to domestic consumers, we're seeing it continue to grow. Why? Because we're not in a recession. And when we grow, we buy more of everything, including more imported goods. But definitely the growth rate of those imported goods have slowed quite substantially. And it's this difference between them that has contributed to the improving trade deficit. The manufacturing sector, therefore, is going to have an okay year, not a great year. Um, they're growing right now at around 2%, and it wouldn't surprise me if they grow at this roughly 2% uh, through the next year. I think the fact that the housing sector remaining weak means that we're not producing a lot of small construction uh, equipment. Uh, uh, we're not going to be selling a lot of pickup trucks from the auto industry to that sector. Um, so that's going to, again, lead to manufacturing being uh, a bit weak, and you know, relatively speaking. But again, it's still growing. Um, Output is as high as it's ever been. And again, this is a story that's rarely reported on in the media. In fact, the typical case, and you listen to uh, people like Senator Edwards, former Senator Edwards talk, it's like, you know, we don't produce anything in this country. Everything is, has been outsourced uh, around the world. Well, and, and people buy that. They think it's, it's, it's reality because pretty much everything that you and I touch is made someplace outside of the United States. Um, because the kind of things that are made in the United States that we manufacture in the United States are not the kind of products that you and I would ever contemplate buying. Uh, to give you an example, um, what do we produce here? We produce high-value-added goods like capital goods. Uh, when you look at one of the products that we produce that's doing ex extremely well, uh, it's a product that's extremely large. Um, this is the Caterpillar 797B. It's the largest truck made in the world. And where is it made? Right here in Illinois, yeah, in Peoria. Um, and, you know, it's just the tires themselves. I mean, the if we put the tire in the room, it would touch the ceiling. Um, you know, and those tires cost forty to $50,000 a piece. And by the way, that's the weak link right now is they cannot get enough tires for these vehicles. Uh, they could produce more, but there's a tire shortage, and it's been the case uh, for quite a while. But they're, in fact, building two new greenfield plants of, uh, for tire production, one of them in, in Illinois, to, uh, to supply them. Uh, it's, it's just an impressive vehicle. Here it's, it's operation. It's a mining crawler, so it's used in mining operations, so commodities. This is an application up in uh, uh, the oil sands up in Canada, which is basically strip mining. Um, each of those loads, by the way, you know, the oil contained within that is worth about $10,000 at the current prices. Uh, so they're running these things nonstop. And, in fact, at a price tag of 4 to $5 million a piece, the oil sands can pay for one of these trucks in about one month's time. So their shortage up there is actually drivers. I mean, if you want, if you've got a, uh, you know, a kid that's graduating uh, <laughs> six figures, they're making $120,000 uh, working up in the oil sands. And a lot of them are. And it's hard work. It's a, it's a horrible environment. There's nothing up there. You're in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, but you, you can make a lot of money very, very quickly. This is the gold rush of, uh, of our generation uh, for younger workers. Um, so, you know, it's an amazing vehicle. It, uh, again, can carry over 400 tons of material. Uh, it does 43 miles an hour. I'm not sure what its gas mileage is. Um, you know, but if you want to get one of these, you, know, you might as well try shopping for uh, you know, uh, you know, some, uh, some other fancy vehicle. You would have the largest SUV in your neighborhood. Um, 
But, you know, they're sold out till 2012. All right, so their order book is completely packed in uh, because of this demand from, from the uh, commodity sector. Um, it, it weighs a million pounds. Think about how much steel goes into them. A million pounds is its weight. You cannot transport it whole. It would just crush the roads. They have to disassemble it and then reassemble it on the job site. Uh, to give you, I can't fathom a million pounds. That's the weight of five 737 passenger jets, fully loaded passenger crew, fuel, luggage, everything. Five jets stacked on top of each other is what this thing weighs. And, and people don't understand that. In fact, they, every so often they do a training up there at the oil sands to say basically, you know, when these things run, because they do run them in, in, in constantly and, in, and in, in, in a path like that, they're like, don't even think about getting near one of these things. You could see how the cab is set back. The sight lines are awful. In fact, they have cameras all around it monitors inside of it so the driver maybe can see what's going on around them. Uh, but it's, it's horrible vision. Um, so here's an example. They said if you're foolish enough to drive your Toyota Highlander uh, in the path of one of these, and this is a, they got people all up on the ridge here observing this thing, and I think it's a good lesson to show them. That's what a million pounds will do. Just runs right over like a bump and, and just fly. You're not walking away from, from that. That's... I think they just lift that and bury it, and that's your coffin. They're not going to extract you out of that. Um, uh, capacity utilization at 80%, that's, that's a good rate. In fact, uh, when we get much above that, we start worrying about inflation consequences coming out of it. So it's right now at a very solid rate. But the auto industry, as you can see, has been trending lower. But this is kind of the good news, bad news story on this. The good news is that you're looking there since 1998, at the best years ever for vehicle sales. The bad news is there's no growth. So if you want to sell more vehicles, you can't grow with the market. You want to grow with the market, you go to a developing economy like India or China. And, and that's where you know, a lot of our companies are, are, are moving very aggressively. Because over here, you want to sell 10,000 more vehicles, you've got to steal them away from somebody else who, who uh, is trying to sell those vehicles. Um, so what's been happening? And people think about our auto industry, they focus on the group formerly known as the Big Three. Right? They're now more appropriately called the Detroit Three, GM, Ford, and Chrysler. Well, their market share has plunged from 70% back in the late 90s to 50% uh, this year, over this past year. Um, and in fact, in, in third quarter, for the very first time, we had more foreign nameplates sold in this country than Big Three product. So that was the very first time that we had more and more. So people look at that and they think that's what's happening to the U.S. auto industry. It's disappearing. What they're ignoring is that red category up there, new domestics. What are new domestics? Well, it's a category that previously we called transplants, which I never liked the, the name transplant. And I think new domestic is a more appropriate. And certainly more appropriately uh, after the fact that uh, Daimler bought Chrysler back in, in 98, you know, that basically turned that American company into a transplant overnight. Um, so uh, transplant is just a foreign-owned company that is producing vehicles in the United States. So uh, when we add those in, you can see that their share has been rising over time. And, in fact, let's, let's take a look back in 1980. Back in 1980, we had about 75% market share for the big three, Okay. So, uh, and we in fact had one transplant at that time operating. That's that little red area. Does anybody remember who was producing here in 1980? Very good. Volkswagen. Okay. And soon to be gone. It didn't last very long. And by uh, early 80s, it, it, it shut down production. And then what we have here, these are all of, you know, the Honda in Ohio and Toyota in Tennessee and, and California and so forth. One after the other began opening up. So let's go back here. 75% market share for the big three back in 1980 and 25% imported. Let's flash flash forward to 2007, and what we see is that once we include in this new domestic, we have 75% market share for domestic production and 25% imports. Hasn't changed. Now, if you work for GM, Ford, and Chrysler, this is horrible. Anybody here want to get rid of their, their strongest competitor in, by tomorrow? Raise your hand. Yeah, of course you do. Anybody's hand who doesn't go up, fire them. I mean, we'd all love to get rid of our, our, our strongest competitor. 
right? So this is bad news for the big three, but it's actually very good news for U.S. consumers. Um, when you think about the kind of products that were being produced back in 1980, when you had three companies controlling 75% of the market, in economics we refer to that as an oligopoly, if you remember your Economics 101, and that's not a good thing. Today, that same market share is produced by 13 different nameplate manufacturers in the United States. Far more competitive. The products are sensational. Even from the least expensive one to the, to the most expensive, they're all high-quality, great products that are out there. Um, the, the, the type that would, that would implode on your driveway after four years, right, the self-design obsolescence, that concept is long gone. Uh, those vehicles are, are very well built. But there are still people out there who say, you know, oh, no, I'm buying American. Well, a couple of years ago, I took my nephew, my godson, who graduated from college on a trip down Route 66. Starts right here at the Art Institute, goes all the way to Santa Monica, California, driving off of the interstate, going through all the small little towns. Great trip. Um, I rented one of these vehicles to do this classic American road. Anybody want to guess which vehicle I rented? 50-50 chance. <laughs> of course, I took the Mustang, right? Classic American vehicle on a classic American road. And, um, but in fact, if I wanted to drive an American vehicle, what I would have found out is that that Mustang has about 70% of its content coming from the U.S. and Canada. The Toyota Sienna, built right next door in Indiana, has 85%. It's actually a higher contented uh, vehicle than, uh, than the Mustang. So uh, this is part of globalization. Just looking at the nameplate of where something is made is not going to be indicative of what it is. Um, and that's true even about stuff coming in from China. Probably only a third of what comes in from China is actually Chinese. But that's another uh, topic to talk about. Um, so when we look at uh, the changes, you can see that domestic content has been rising quite impressively over the past 10 years from these transplants. So they're actually looking very similar to the kind of content that we're seeing out of the group formerly known as the Big Three. All right, so let's get into the, uh, the, the last topics, which is about the housing and, and, and real estate. Um, so when we look at what's been happening, uh, you know, people focus so much on, on, on residential construction, they forget about what's happening on non-res. So non-res, of course, is everything outside of housing type things, either single family or multifamily homes, that's residential. Everything else is non-residential. And that, as you can see, has been going great. And it's a large part of why GDP has been doing very well. Uh, so that, in fact, those growth rates have been moving higher, and, and, and it's a big positive story for the economy. Um, let's talk about what's happened on the residential side. Well, residential, the problem is we have too many friggin' homes out there, right? The, 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 the inventory of unsold single-family homes, and by the way, that's the one you want to look at, not the existing, because with existing inventory of homes, there's a lot of people out there fishing, um, so they're not really that desperate to sell the home. But when you've got single family, new single-family homes that are vacant, these are very uh, aggressive sellers who really want to get rid of these homes. Anyway, that supply is up over nine months. In fact, it moved higher as the year came to a close, and, and that's an important point to consider. Well, building homes is no different than building cars. When inventories go higher, what does the auto industry do? They cut back on production. And the production cuts have been substantial, although I would argue probably not substantial enough. Uh, so here we can see that they, they cut back on production by about 30%. But if you go back to 1990, that cutback was about 40%. And perhaps if they had cut more dramatically earlier, we wouldn't be looking at nine-month supply. And guess what? When they realized that they had not cut back enough, that's when they took another step down in the third quarter. And that's why housing starts, rather than having those declines become less, have actually pulled back further uh, as we have proceeded through the year. Um, so what's driving this? Well, it's not the economy. We typically think of three factors. One is the economy, and jobs are being created, incomes are rising. It's not the economy. It's not interest rates. Um, interest rates, you know, look at those interest rates. I mean, six and three quarter at the peak. Anybody think six and three quarter percent interest rate is unreasonable enough, certainly enough to cause a 30, 40 percent decline in housing starts? You know, and currently it's just above six percent. I think those are very attractive 
mortgage rates. So it's not interest rates that are causing this. So hopefully it's the third factor that underlies housing demand, and I think we have a winner um, or loser, uh, and that's the price of homes, which for the past 10 years, uh, I should say 95 through 2006, um, had ex- the rate of increases of home prices exceeded that of inflation. So if your incomes were keeping up with inflation, purchasing a home was representing a bigger and bigger slice of your income. So homes were becoming less and less affordable. And then towards the very end, uh, we had especially this surge that occurred, and a lot of it were these flippers, these people who were really trying to get on the bandwagon at the last minute, and a lot of fraud that was taking place that drove those returns up over 15% which when you think about it are spectacular returns when you think about the fact that most homeowners have to take out a loan and they're the minority shareholder. So if you own a home with 20% into the game and the price goes up by you know 15%, your return is actually 75%, not 15%. And people, if you can only put 10% into it and it goes up by uh, 15% as it did during 2006, your return then doubles to 150%. And we found people doing this kind of LBO, leverage buyout on homes, where they were putting less and less skin in the game. And therefore, you know, and they weren't worried about the adjustable rate because I'm not going to keep the home for more than a couple of years. I'm going to make a killing. I'm not going to have much uh, equity in the home, and then I'll really get a, a phenomenal return. I'm sure there were those you know, wealth creation seminars that were going all around the country uh, telling people to do this specific thing. Well, it's kind of a Ponzi scheme because it's all predicated on these prices going higher. Once people stop buying these homes and thinking, you know, that price is really unreasonable, really crazy, uh, the game is over. And the game ended very quickly, as you can see. So prices of homes have come down. Now, people talk about a collapse. Now, certain markets, the movements have been more dramatic. But nationally, it hasn't been that much of a, of a collapse, as you can see there from the level. Um, it's, it's not moved down all that much. But it, it, ha- it has come down a bit from where it had been. Um, and things like even new single-family homes, uh, those prices haven't moved down as much as I think would be warranted. Now, I think this also tends to understate the real declines because especially developers who have large developments, you know, if you sold half of your development out and you sold the houses for 300000 you're very hesitant to, say, knock 10% off and start selling them for two seventy because of the other half who you already sold to are going to come knocking at your door saying, hey, Where's my thirty thousand dollars back? You know, you sold me this house at three hundred. I should have bought it at two seventy. Um, so what they're doing is they are still selling them at three hundred, but they're throwing in marble and granite and stainless steel appliances, putting a lot more content into the home, but not changing the price of the home. So I think that tends to underestimate the declines that are actually transacting because when you buy a higher contented home, that's an actual price decline when you're paying the same price. So um, another measurement, that was the National Association of Realtors price data. This is, I think, a better measurement. Uh, This is the Office of Federal Housing Enterprise Oversight, the OFAO measurement, which looks at same uh, home transactions, so identical homes that have transacted over time. And and here you can see that um, for a long time, the U.S. had been doing much better than most of the states in our region. And and that has translated into um, probably what's going to turn out to be a better performance in 2008 for the Midwest than the U.S. Because right now, most of our states are at the U.S. level, except for Michigan. But again, it's their lousy economy. Um, uh, But I think what's going to happen is that the U.S., because of the greater imbalances that have been built up in prices, are going to have to adjust more than what needs to take place in the Midwest. Um, So when we look around, you can see that uh, uh, the red are the states that are actually outright declining. So not too, fam- too surprising to see those familiar names of, uh, of, of the different states uh, between you know, California, Nevada, Arizona, Florida, uh, and Michigan and Ohio because of the economy related to the auto industry. Um, but you know, our states here are sitting still at between 0 and 4% gains on a third quarter over third quarter basis. Um, if we look at state by state, I'm sorry, city by city, a very similar story. 
Uh, the major cities within our states are, are close to the U.S. average. But again, I expect to see them, for the most part, especially Chicago, outperform the U.S. average uh, for home prices uh, during 2008. Uh, Detroit, as you can see, just continues to fall off the, off the map. Um, and uh, activity has, has also uh, fallen off. Uh, it maybe is bottoming. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, but transactions are definitely down. So those who make their living doing real estate transactions, so your real estate agents, mortgage brokers, title company people, uh, you don't, we don't need as many of them. We're down to levels that we haven't seen in 10 years. So all of those people that have been added over the past 10 years, we can get rid of, and probably more so because it's probably technology allows us to get by with even fewer than what we needed back then. Part of the reason for my sensing that we might reach bottom by the, by the middle of the year is that through the third quarter, we have already adjusted residential investment to a per, per percentage that is below its long-run average. So with the fourth, first, and second quarter to go, I think we're going to have enough of a pullback in residential investment that we'll actually begin to see it move back higher. And when that happens, we basically reach bottom. So uh, another reason for that is that... Um, uh, home own, the affordability index has moved higher. Still low, but as prices have begun to be more reasonable, uh, we're seeing more affordability on homes. And again, I hope by the middle of, the, of this year that affordability will be attractive enough that there's going to be a, maybe a bit of pent-up demand to get us at, at to a, a flat level. So the 2007 watchword was subprime. Uh, and, you know, it's not all subprime. In fact, I, most of the issue here is the people who took out adjustable rate mortgages because when you look at the prime borrowers, you can see uh, the foreclosure rates are rising even for prime borrowers with the ARMs, the adjustable rate mortgages. But as in particular, though, subprime is up substantially. But look at the fixed rate mortgages, the red line for subprime borrowers. Their foreclosure rate isn't moving at all. It's not the economy. It's the fact that we had a lot of people that got into the wrong product, um, or maybe they got into the right product but just judged the market wrong and thought that they would be out of this home in two or three years. And now they're sitting on a home that's coming up for uh, you know, having the mortgage to be uh, reassessed and uh, revalued, and, and uh, they can't sell the home because the, the market has moved against them and they have no equity in it. So that's part of, uh, I think, of what's going on. What are we talking about here? The subprime adjustable rate piece represents about uh, less than 1% of the entire mortgage portfolio that's outstanding. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a certain amount, but I don't think it's enough to tank uh, the entire housing sector nor the economy. Where are most of the weakness? The Midwest, because of, uh, in particular, uh, what's been happening in Michigan and Indiana, two of our key manufacturing states, and because of that, uh, uh, they're really driving up the uh, foreclosure rates. Chicago, as you can see, kind of following along what's been happening nationally, um, uh, or the Illinois, and the and then the last thing to talk about is some of the instability that happened in the financial markets. Um, so what happened? Well, we had a whole bunch of products which were put of these subprime mortgage products that were put into these very sophisticated, in fact, so sophisticated, I don't understand them. Um, these are the CDOs, the collateralized debt obligations. We would have our finance experts at the bank come in and talk to uh, the, uh, the, the briefing group for the FOMC process, and my head would spin. I mean, I would ask questions, and they would truck on you know, different tranches. Who gets paid off when? I didn't understand them. But, you know, and I felt like a dummy. Um, but evidently, you know, this year made me feel not too bad because evidently the people that were buying these things and the people that were rating these things didn't understand them. Um, because what happened was, you know, the Standard and & Poor's and Moody's and Fitch's were, were giving these things AAA ratings. And when they started to experience losses in the springtime that were above what a AAA security should be losing, they said, whoa, what's going on here? That And all of a sudden, risk needed to be repriced. And in fact, they said, well, maybe these rating companies don't even know how to rate stuff that they've been doing for, for 30, 40 years, you know, the, the, the bonds, uh, corporate bonds and stuff. So what we saw was the fact that these are credit spreads between the best corporate borrowers, AAA, and the high yield, the junk bond. We got to a point in early this year where there was only a 200 basis point spread between the best and the worst. The very fact that the worst borrowers only had to, the, the junk bond companies only had to pay 
2% more than the best companies out there. That's crazy. The, when you think about the risk involved in those companies versus the best companies. Well, guess what? The market began to rapidly reprice that risk. And we actually saw the corporate values actually come lower as the Fed eased during the second half of the year, uh, particularly the, the latter part of the year. But beginning in June, we began to see the high yield move higher and higher. My issue here is I'm surprised that it continues to move higher, why it hasn't repriced more quickly and up to the level that it should be at. Uh, you know, these markets just do not seem to be functioning as efficiently, I would think, as, as, or as efficiently as we like to think markets operate. That presents a risk to the outlook, although so far so good in terms of our businesses that we talk with are not being impacted by the instabilities in the financial markets. So uh, we're seeing a 250 basis point rise in the risk assessment between the best and the worst corporate side. And then there's also been, because there's all this uncertainty, that, which is normally when you get worried about what is happening on the corporate side and whether they can rate this stuff, you, you turn to a no-risk asset like a treasury security. And here, when we saw the Treasury securities earlier this year, uh, there was only a 60 basis point spread between the best corporate and a no-risk Treasury security. Again, very, very low risk uh, or, or reward for the risk involved, in, in my opinion, in investing in a, in, a, in a corporate. Well, that has reversed itself because there's been a flight to quality as – uh, treasury yields were, were everybody was trying to buy up these no risk assets because be, all of a sudden it became that sometimes it's a, it's a return on of capital that's more important than the return on capital, uh, and people wanted to get their money back so they all of a sudden fl flooded the market trying to buy up these no risk treasury assets driving their price up yields down and we're right now sitting at uh, ten year ten year rates that are below four percent, um, which could be very supportive for economic activity so keep that in mind as well. Um, the credit spreads between them, therefore, have more than doubled. So that's a risk, uh, the fact that there seems to be this illiquidity that still exists out there. So to that end, because of these issues, uh, the Fed made its move of knocking 100 basis points off of the Fed funds rate in the latter part of the year. Uh, we've got a meeting coming up at the end of this month, and, and a lot of these issues that I brought forward here are going to be on the table for discussion, this trade-off between inflation risks and economic risks that are out there. But I think the win weight, the, this index, because I'm only here once a year, as much as I would like to be here more often, um, the, the one risk, uh, sorry, the one way of kind of get, capturing a snapshot on a monthly basis, I would advise you to visit our website, which is on the last slide in the handout, and take a look at our National Activity Index. Uh, this index will give you a measurement of how we're doing with regard to our trend. When the index is at zero, it means the economy is growing near its trend of this roughly right now two and a half to two and three quarter percent. Right now, the number is somewhat below trend, about a minus 0.5. In 1990, uh, one, we went into a recession uh, when the index got down to a minus 0.7. And in 2001, that index got down to a minus 1.3. So we're getting awfully close to levels that are closely associated with a recession that we might have had in the past. So my expectation is that the economy is actually going to be doing a bit better versus the fourth quarter as we move through the year. So this number here will probably move back up but still remain above, above, below zero for most of the year. So something for you to monitor to see how good I am in terms of talking about the economy and couching it in this framework. Um, in addition, there's some other numbers you can look at. Um, the last page of your handout presents these tables. It's the consensus outlook from my Economic Outlook Symposium. A couple of points just to make here. They see the drag from residential investment still being negative in 2008 although much less negative than they expect for it to have occurred for 2007. Housing starts, they see that being a very low 1.21. Uh, they see a bottom being reached, but not any kind of a recovery. And it's going to be kind of those dead cat bounce recoveries where it just hits the bottom and stays there. It's not going to bounce back up. Uh, energy prices they see uh, coming back down. And that's what the futures market sees as well. And that's going to lead to the inflation rate being a bit lower this year than it was uh, in 2007. So a couple of my concluding points that I've already made during my remarks uh, with that. I know we're, we're running about five minutes late, but if there's time for a question or two, uh, two questions I can handle, I'll be happy 
to uh, to address that. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you know, I, number one, I would normally not even uh, address that. I don't think it's appropriate for a Fed official to uh, to talk about that. But the other thing is they haven't really talked much about their economic policies yet. And I think as we get closer to the election times, those will be more clearly uh, defined. Everybody's talking change, but nobody knows what that exactly means. Yes? You put a lot of emphasis on job growth, but aren't a lot of the jobs, the newer jobs, lower paying and, and second jobs? Yeah, this is, a ver- and this is an issue I, I'm hoping to work a little bit more on and, and develop. Um, because the, the, the issue about the job creation, whether good jobs or bad jobs, the answer is yes. Um, uh, the jobs that we are creating, there are some great jobs, but there are also a lot of not-so-great jobs. Uh, nonetheless, the net effect is that incomes are rising. But what we're recognizing, and this is why you know, I was talking with Tom earlier about how important it is to work with our young people and get them involved in, in good uh, careers and get them trained, is that there is more and more, as we become this service-based, information-based society, it is the rewards of your skill sets that are going to be recognized. Um, and that if you want to succeed, no longer is do you have that opportunity of you know dropping out of high school, getting a job at an auto factory, and making sixty dollars an hour. Those jobs are gone. Uh, we never, and I would argue, we never should have had those kind of jobs. And what we, by having them, you wound up with a situation like what Michigan is going through, where they refuse to deal with globalization and reality of, of what those jobs should have been like. Um, so. We, but nonetheless, what we're seeing is a, is a re- recognition and a reward to education. Uh, and education doesn't mean necessarily college. It could also mean working with our um, uh, uh, two-year uh, community schools and making sure that they are putting out students that will be able to work in the careers that uh, we have out there, as well as the trades, um, you know, carpenters. I talked to a home remodeling group, and there's a, a dearth of, of, of quality carpenters, um, I mean, there are people that know how to put up drywall, uh, but that's about it. A real quality carpenter is few and far between. Those of you doing more extensive remodeling probably know that. One more. You mentioned the trade deficits, and there was a little bit of the dollar weakness, and speaking of debt cap, not dollar weakness. If the Fed is forced to reduce rates another 50 to 100 basis points in the next, say, few weeks, what bullets do you have left to support the dollar? Well, Number one, um, it's not a Fed policy to support any level of the dollar. In fact, I'm not allowed to make any comments about the future direction of the dollar. Um, We leave that. And in fact, watch the testimony that Bernanke will give to Congress uh, uh, next month. Trust me, there's going to be a congressman uh, or senator who's going to ask uh, uh, Ben about, you know, what, do you, what, what about the dollar? And he's going to give you the exact same answer, which is we have this agreement with the Treasury Department that we do not comment on the dollar, they do not comment on monetary policy, and we don't confuse the market. So it's really a Treasury issue of what they do. Our policy, what we, what we do with monetary policy is choose the best best path for interest rates that's good for the American people. We need to take into account this in a global framework of how our policy change might impact things like the dollar and hence how that might impact the trade deficit and so forth. Um, But in that context, we're going to do whatever is best for the American people uh, with with our monetary policy. Um, So, but we don't, we don't, we don't aggressively run anything on our own with regard to dollar policy. Uh, If we want to do something at the Treasury's direction, we will do that. So basically, you know, the Treasury Secretary will, will, will speak to us and tell us we would like you to do X, Y, Z on their behalf. Uh, in terms of buying up a foreign currency or, or buying up some dollars, and, and, and we would do that on their behalf, but only as a fiscal agent of the Treasury Department. But excellent question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Uh, my condolences to Michigan, uh, but I feel better overall. Uh, See you on February 14th, and don't forget to fill out the uh, evaluation forms. Thanks very much.